I don't know if you've served the Lord for any length of time, but if you have, after a while, you can find it daunting. If you've kind of pitched in and walked alongside of ministry for some season of life, a year, five years, ten years longer, at times you can find serving God daunting. It can be overwhelming. And sometimes it can be overwhelming because there's little results. You seem to pour yourself into something. You seem to give yourself to something, whatever that something is. And at the end, there seems to just be nothing happens. No one really comes to faith in Christ. No one seems to be influenced or affected. And you're just, like that was just a season that there didn't seem to be any fruit from. Sometimes it's because it can be lonely. You can feel as if you're on your own. You're pitching in and people offer to come or offer to help or offer to assist, and then for whatever reason, sometimes legitimate, sometimes illegitimate, they just kind of bail out on you. And you're like, well, I thought we were doing this together. I thought this was team. I thought this was us. Sometimes it can be because of funding. I mean, how many missionaries do I know who I think are qualified to go and to serve the Lord? Sometimes in some very difficult places. They're willing to give up their life here and go and serve the Lord for a lifetime overseas. And they can't find enough Christians that will support them to do so. They're willing to go and work in some difficult and dark countries where few people have gone, where the light is very dark, where maybe, I mean, you know there are countries in our world where you'll never see a church. You just won't see them. Millions of people, not a church. And it can become really hard and frustrating when you're qualified and you're ready and you're willing and you're excited and there's just no support. There's just no finances that are there. Sometimes it can be hard because of opposition that you face because at times people are in opposition to the gospel or also because of rejection that you face because people decide they want nothing to do with you. And the Apostle Paul faced difficulty just like this. I mean, he's just been chased out of Thessalonica and the people from Thessalonica are so opposed to what he's done that they follow him to Berea to chase him out of there. I mean, miles away, a day's journey. That's pretty intense opposition. He's been stoned already. The Lord had to revive him from that. He's lacked funds, so he tent makes. He, that's where we get the word from, right? It's leather making is the best way to translate it. But Paul's there working as he's preaching the gospel As he's going and sharing and proclaiming who Christ is, he's also trying to earn a living so that he can eat. I mean, why is he tent making? Because he needs to eat. And so he's trying to make enough money so that he can eat. He faces lots of rejection and opposition. And I imagine there are moments, because Paul's human, where this was just tough, where this was just really hard. And at times in ministry, each of us can find it just really tough, can find it just really hard. There can be moments and times where we're just like, Is this really worth it? Like, is this really what I should be doing? So this morning, I want to encourage you with how God encourages Paul and ask you to begin to look at your life the way that God may begin to encourage you. If you have your Bibles, it's Acts chapter 18, Acts 18. It'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to stutter step through it, the first four verses. After this, that was Paul in Athens. Paul leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. When Paul went to see them, 
And, I'm sorry, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul leaves Athens, he heads to Corinth. Now, we know the first books of First and Second Corinthians are written to the church in Corinth. Corinth had two ports. It was a huge city. So it had two ports. No other city in those days, or a few other cities, had two ports. That's how large Corinth was. It was important. It was cosmopolitan, like no other city probably in that day except for Rome itself. People from all over the world were there. Lots of seafarers, lots of merchants. I mean, when you think of pirates of the Caribbean, think of Corinth. Right? I mean, when you think of the lifestyle of the pirates, of the seafarers, I mean, that was Corinth. It was leveled in 146 BC. So the Corinthians stood strong against the Roman Empire, and Rome finally said, enough. And in 146 BC, they leveled the entire city, they annihilated it. And then 46 BC, Julius Caesar said, I want to raise Corinth up again. It was too important a port city. We can't lose it. It both has the east-west ability to travel uh, along the seaport and then the north-south along the land. We need Corinth. So Julius Caesar reestablished Corinth and it was being rebuilt. And two Greek gods had temples in Corinth. Poseidon, which makes sense, right? God of water. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it was said prior to its destruction that 800 male and female prostitutes were at the temple of Aphrodite, and the way you went to worship Aphrodite was through the prostitutes. And it was said that in this day, where Paul is coming to Corinth, there's probably still 500 to 600 prostitutes. It's no longer as big as it was, but this is how they gathered to worship the great goddess Aphrodite. And so here, Paul enters into Corinth, not dissimilar from our cities today. Well, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. They're from Rome at this time. They're living in Italy. Claudius had issued an edict saying no Jews could live in Italy, so they have to leave Italy. It was because there were constant Jewish uprisings in Rome. He said enough. He issued an edict to say that they should go, so they left Rome. They end up in Corinth, and Paul meets them. They're tent makers. Likely, they left their business in Rome. They've had to leave it behind to come. They're Jewish people, though, who've come to faith in Christ, likely not through Paul's ministry. It would seem from the text that they've already come to faith in Christ. And so Paul meets this godly couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers or leather makers like him, and they begin to work together. And as they work together, Paul goes to the synagogue. This is his regular strategy to go to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So every Saturday, he's going to the synagogue, and as he's there at the synagogue here in Corinth, he's debating, he's dialoguing, that Christ is the Messiah. He's working through the Old Testament. He's still recognized. We saw this through Acts as a rabbi. So he would be recognized as a teacher who would be coming as a visitor, often asked to come up and to speak to the congregation that was there. And as he spoke, he would use the Old Testament to prove that the one who came, the Christ, Jesus, Christ being his title, not his last name, that Jesus, the Christ, who is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. That's what Paul was doing. And so they were there in the synagogue. And I've asked this question through Acts, but I think it's important for us to keep thinking about it. Where are our synagogues today? Paul went to the synagogue intentionally because he knew 
that these were Jewish people who were trying, striving to follow Jehovah God, Yahweh, yet didn't understand or comprehend that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he went there to explain to them who Jesus is. And as we think about our culture today, where are the places in our culture, who are the people in our culture where God is at work in someone's life or in a group of people's lives that we should maybe be getting on board with as we see God work? I mean, one of the people for me that's been obvious is the Quran. I am very intentionally thinking through how we continue to train the Quran. In fact, closely, and I have talked about next year, our plan, because they host a, a, a national Quran conference, there's 13 congregations across Canada. Can we host the conference here, invite all the congregations here and have Dr. Rick Reed, Rick Buck, Dr. Rick Buck, myself, do some of the teaching and preaching to continue to work with the Quran people across our nation? Because they heard about the gospel in Thailand in the refugee camp, came to Canada, we watched many of them, their young people specifically, abandon their faith as they went to their parents for answers to questions that their parents could not answer about who God is and what the Bible is. And now we've seen here a whole number of them come back to faith in Christ and grow in their faith. And so we're like, okay, God's at work here. And we've seen about 18 of them come to faith in Christ in the last couple of years. That seems to be a work only God can do, right? Only God can save. And a work when you see that many people in a people group coming to faith in Christ, you're like, okay, God, should we be thinking about the preaching and the Quran congregations across this nation? Is that one of the areas you're at work in? When I think of the, when Derek and I have been talking about what it looks like to launch another basketball ministry like we had years ago, Jordan helped to run that for years here at our church with some other guys from the church, and, uh, but he took the lead on it for years, and, 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 uh, and relaunched that again this summer, and and move it from Thursday nights because all the young people, the young people that are coming to youth group don't all want to play ball all the time. And the guys that come in at 8.30 only want to play ball all the time. So let's start a ball night after junior high for them. And let's share the gospel and figure out what this looks like, right? If this is what's going on. And if they're coming, if we have a whole group of Muslim people coming into our church to hear the gospel, does that not seem to make a statement that God's at work somewhere there? And so let's figure out where are the synagogues of our day? in your family, in your neighborhood, people, lives around you? Where is it that God is at work in the lives of the people around you that you know that you should be saying, man, as I get up, as, I, as I'm praying about next, these are, these are the people that I should be engaging in conversation with. Verse five. Well, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Silas and Timothy, you may remember, Paul left them behind as he continued to travel on from Berea. They stayed in Berea, and he went on to, Thessalon uh, on to Athens. They weren't with him in Athens. Now he's in Corinth and they've joined him. Now, there's an interesting statement here. When they joined him, right, two young men that he's mentoring, it says Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. What's that statement about? Likely they brought the gift that we read about in Corinthians. That comes from the church in Philippi because Philippi is in the province of Macedonia. So when Paul, right, in Scripture thanks the Philippians, right, those of you know this when you've read through Philippians, for their gift and in Corinthians talks about it, 
this is likely what happens. Silas and Timothy have collected the gift, have brought it with them, and now Paul doesn't need to work anymore because the Philippians have supplied enough money that he can give himself, devote himself exclusively to preaching. That's my suggestion there as to what's happened, that the gift we read about in Corinthians and that Paul thanks the church in Philippi for is received here from Macedonia to the Apostle Paul. And in this moment now, he can give himself exclusively to the preaching of the word. But there's opposition. The Jewish people now become abusive to Paul. And Paul finally says to them here, as he's sensing that his mission is being called to the Gentiles, he's like, I'm done. He shakes out his clothes in protest. That's to say, I don't even want your dust on me. That's a pretty big statement, right? I don't even want your dust on me. And so he says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it, and I will go to the Gentiles. There are times as you discern who to talk to, right? We just talked about where your synagogue is and who to walk alongside of that sometimes you go, I'm done. The Lord just calls you to be done. You walk alongside someone for a season, right? A year, two, five, ten, whatever it is. You faithfully shared the gospel with them. They have no interest in the gospel. In fact, here they're oppressive and abusive and you finally say, I'm, I'm done. God's calling me to go somewhere where the fruit is more ripe. That's what the apostle does here. There's nothing wrong with that. It takes discernment, prayerful discernment. But sometimes God actually says, you're done. This season with these people or this person is done. You faithfully shared the gospel. They haven't wanted to hear it. And you walk away. Now, what does that walk away look like? I mean, Paul shakes the dust off his cloaks, right? I would suggest you continue to pray for the people as God brings them to mind. And if they ever show back up in your life, interested in the gospel, that that's God's open door because you've continued to pray for them. But there may be seasons where you say, I've done my best in sharing the gospel. They're in opposition to it, and I'm going to walk away from them because I feel like God's calling me to other fertile ground. And that is simply... Paul does it as an example for us here. And then you continue to walk toward other fertile ground that God may be using you in. Notice, though, even though Paul walks out of the synagogue, what happens? Um, Then Paul, verse 7, left the synagogue and went next door to the house of uh, Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Cyprus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So it's not that there is no fruit. In the midst of this, the synagogue leader, the person who's leading the synagogue, actually comes to faith in Christ. They're saved. And because they're saved, a number of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and are baptized. And not only is Cyprus saved, but his entire household is saved. They all believe, the Bible says. That's important to note, that when you see households mentioned in Acts, with the exception of uh, Lydia, uh, all of the households where it says that they believe, or it says that they were baptized, this isn't talking about baptism, but it also talks about how they believed. And here you have the whole household, again, believing, believing. Do you know God still does this? God still saves households. 
Is that not good news? God still chooses to save whole households. I was at a car rally last Sunday. Uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa runs a car rally. They're a church of like, I don't know, 1,500 people. They asked me months ago if I'd come and speak at this event. They had 420 cars show up, antique cars and brand new cars. It's a car show, so like somebody had a brand new 2021, like they just got it delivered, Corvette. It was pretty stunning, to be honest. And, so, and then there was a car from 1922, um, 100 years old. And so what they do is the cars start arriving like at 5.30 in the morning. It's, it's in Oshawa, right? Car capital of Canada. So people want to come in from all over. And uh, 420 cars came for the car show. So then in the morning, they serve breakfast to all the people bringing their cars in. They do giveaways at the breakfast so that people come in. All kinds of cases of oil, all kinds of fun stuff. And, and then during the breakfast, I share for like 10 minutes, 10 to 12 minutes is what I got. And then I get to share during the service. And they're praying that the guys and their wives, or the wives and their guys, depending on who owns the car, who brought the car, um, come in for the service. And a whole group of them did. And so I share in, in the morning, and then I wandered out through the cars, because they'd all seen me share. And I just wandered out between the breakfast and the service, talking to people that were there for the cars. And this guy pulls me over, and he's like, hey, he's like, son, it feels good when you're 50 and people call you son. You got to know, he was gray-haired. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Somebody still thinks they're older than me. And I'm like, yeah. He said, he said uh, I want you to know I'm here today, and uh, a number of years ago, God saved me. And uh, saved me when I was about 55. He said, and then God grabbed a hold of my wife, saved her about a year and a half later, and then began to, be, began to pray our kids into the kingdom. And God's now saved two of my three kids and their spouses. And he said, my youngest son is here today. He's a car fanatic, and he's brought his car, and he doesn't know the Lord. I'm praying for you when you preach today. I'm praying today will be the day my son will be saved by Jesus. I told him he's got to come into the service or I won't buy him lunch. I said, oh, great, he's being bribed. And then he said, I'm kidding because lunch is free. I mean, this church then served lunch, right? 150 people or more volunteering all day with like, I think 3,000 people from Oshawa coming in. Served lunch for all of those people last Sunday. It was something else. It was something to watch and to, and to be a part of. But God still saves households. Is that not good news? Do you know he still saves religious leaders? It's not that long ago that I got a phone call from a friend of mine saying, we're in this ministerial in the Peterborough area, and as we're in this ministerial that's eclectic and not uh, evangelical, um, most of us know the Lord, but obviously some don't, and through this season, God has powerfully worked in the life of the United Pastor, and he's now come to faith in Christ. Like, wow. And they're like, we want to meet with a few people and just talk about what we do next. And I'm like, what do you mean, what you do next? And they said, well, like this guy's asked, like, should he resign? Like, he feels like a brand new believer. He's got a whole congregation. I said, the last thing I would do is resign. I said, maybe give him a break and a few of you fill his pulpit for a few weeks, train him up in the ministry, and then let, just go for it. Like, like, let's just allow the Spirit of God to use him in this place and see what the Lord will do. Hugh Latimer was born in 1490 in England, and he was a bishop, bishop of England, a very powerful man. And little Bilney had come to faith in Christ. He was a monk who had worked under the bishop. And he had tried to get an audience with the bishop to explain and to express that God had worked powerfully in his life and saved him, but 
he was unable to get that type of an audience. But he knew that if he could talk to the bishop and tell the bishop that he wanted to meet with him for confession, that the bishop could not say no. So he managed to be in a place where the bishop was and told the bishop that he wanted to meet with him for confession. The bishop obliged, met him in the booth for confession, where that monk shared the gospel. He confessed the gospel to Hugh Latmer. You may know this story. Latmer says, as he writes about this account, he says, in that moment, as I heard the gospel for the first time, my eyes were opened. Having studied the scriptures all of my life, my eyes were opened to the saving knowledge and truth of Jesus. And he began to preach the gospel so faithfully that he was martyred at his death in 1555. See, God not only saves households, but he still saves religious leaders. We should be praying for the people around us in other congregations who are no longer walking with the Lord. Those that have abandoned the faith, those that have walked away from the faith, those that are not following Christ anymore. Other religions, what would it look like if the local imam, I mean, Friday I was, I, was, I can't remember where I was driving, but I was driving down York Boulevard and I passed the mosque and I'm like, wow, it's busy. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course, it's Friday. So many people, so many people there that they're all parked over at Sir John A and walking over. What would it look like if God grabbed a hold of the local imam there and saved him? And who will get to know him? And who will, what if he's your neighbor? All around us, there are people whom the Lord may be at work in. Cyprus is saved. God powerfully grabs a hold of his heart. And the Corinthians come to faith in Christ. Well, many Corinthians. Verse 9, one night the Lord then spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. God then speaks to Paul. So God grants Paul encouragement here so far in three ways, right? Priscilla and Aquila, he meets new Christian friends. Silas shows up with Timothy, the men he's mentoring come. A gift comes from Macedonia so that he no longer needs to tent make, but he can keep on working. The synagogue leader comes to faith in Christ. God saves him. I mean, this would offer you some encouragement, wouldn't it? And then God shows up in a vision. God says, Paul, I want you to know I'm right here with you. And so he says, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. Paul, I'm walking with you. Paul, I haven't abandoned you. Paul, I haven't left you. And no one's going to attack and harm you. That, that doesn't mean you won't be attacked. It means you won't be harmed in the attack. We see that in the next few verses. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul says, I will stay a year and a half. That's what he does. And he teaches them the word of God. Paul just stays for a long time. So he's, he's in Corinth at this point when he's a vision. He's been there a few months. So he's likely there close to two years in Corinth. And so Paul stays in Corinth for a long time. And then he goes to Ephesus, where, I mean, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch, back to Ephesus. We'll look at this in a minute. And he stays in Ephesus three years. So most of the next six years of Paul's ministry are in two places, Corinth and Ephesus. And Paul hears from God, I'm with you, you don't need to be afraid. 
I have people in the city that I'm going to save. Verse 12, when Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia, um, while Galileo, sorry, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. So Galileo is the Roman proconsul. He's in charge of that area. He's in charge of all of Achaia. The Jewish people, when it says they attack him, this is verbally, they bring Paul in, right? This isn't like they physically beat him because God said, I'm going to keep you from harm. But they bring, bring Paul in for judgment in front of Galileo. And they're like, hey, this man uh, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, here, they're not talking about Jewish law because they know Galileo won't comment on Jewish law. They're talking about Roman law. Why are they talking about Roman law? Because the Roman law protected the Jewish people. The Roman law said that the Jewish people were still allowed to worship God in their tradition and in their way. And so they've come before Galileo and they've said, he's actually defying Roman law. That's why they're bringing him to Galileo. Paul, the apostle, is defining, defying Roman law and he's defying Roman law by teaching the worship of God differently than what we believe. Now, when you read other historians on Galileo, he was told to be full of charm and wit. People loved Galileo. Be funny, he was supposed to be quick and full of charm. People just enjoyed being around him. And so this is what's brought before him. Well, this is his response. Just as Paul was about to speak, so Paul's about to give a defense, Galileo says to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, Settle it among yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. And he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. So Galileo offers his verdict. He said, this is not between me and you. This is between you and you. Whatever he's teaching, I'm not going to get involved with. It's about the interpretation of your law. And he said, that's not my place to get involved. I'm not about to jump in and he's so frustrated that they've brought this matter before him that when the synagogue leader who would have at this time because remember uh, cyprus has come to faith in christ who had previously been the synagogue leader when this man uh Sophanes, who brought this matter before him is being beaten uh in in front of him uh because the crowd turns on him he just walks away he doesn't even care this grants in the Corinthian area, about 10 years of religious freedom, this ruling, when you read church history. This ruling alone grants, in the Corinthian area, about 10 years, some would say as much as 12 years, but at least 10 years of religious freedom. It's incredible, this one ruling, and what it does. Because sometimes God chooses to use the civil government to grant favor to his people. Doesn't always. Sometimes we'll be persecuted. Sometimes we'll be opposed and oppressed. But sometimes the civil government will say, no, there's an injustice going on here, and God will grant them to side with us. Now, we're mindful of the fact that we are aliens and strangers, that we are citizens of heaven, that this is not our home. But even this week in the States, when Roe versus Wade is overturned, as Christians, that's something we should be rejoicing in. As Christians, we should be looking upon something like that and saying, the number of children in all of the aftermath of this that I recognize is going to be incredibly complex, 
that God is going to save through this is staggering. And the ramifications for a nation of this. I'm not saying that there's not going to be mess, but I'm saying in this moment, the court has granted justice according to the word of God. It's what God would do. And so because of that, sometimes God will grant justice according to his word for us now. Sometimes we won't see that justice till we see him face to face. But in this moment, Paul is told, as the ruling of Galileo, this is about your law and the way you're understanding Jewish custom and culture. He says, I'll have nothing to do with it. And for about 10 years, they're granted that type of freedom. This is possibly why Paul says we should be praying for those in authority over us. We should be praying for our premier, praying for our prime minister. I mean, this fall, we have municipal elections. Have you been following who's going to be running for mayor? Are you praying for those that are running for mayor? Are you praying that God will grant us the best mayor we can have, the counselor of your ward, trustees for the board of education? Are you praying to that end as all of this is going to unfold here this fall? Because sometimes God will simply grant us a reprieve and favor for a season, recognizing that this is not our home, that we're just passing through. So Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, verse 18. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chantria because of a vow he had taken. We have no clue what that's about. Listen, zero. You can read all kinds of people that will say, well, it was maybe a Nazarite vow. Sure, it might have been. It doesn't say. Well, maybe it was. Sure, it might have been. It doesn't say. All I know is Paul made a vow. He got his hair cut off. Maybe, right? He said, hey, you know what? If we can raise enough money for Timothy and uh, Silas to be able to be in full-time ministry, I'll shave my head. And they raised enough money. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying the Apostle Paul would do that. I've just... I've been involved in a number of fundraisers. Dwayne, can we shave your head if? I'm like, what? Can we throw a pie in your face if? We have no clue what vow was going on here. Often people think it's a Nazarite vow, but it doesn't say. All we know is that Paul made a vow. He kept his vow. He shaved his head, so now he's bald. That's all we know. Um, they arrived in Ephesus where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, with Paul, where he left, sorry, Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue again, reasoning with the Jews. So he left the synagogue in in a Corinth, but he's back in the synagogue in Ephesus because it was about the synagogue there, not the synagogue here. When they asked him to spend more time with him, he declined. He had somewhere to go. Um, but he said, I will come back if it's God's will. So he set sail from Ephesus. He lands in uh, Caesarea. Then he goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church down to Antioch. And then from there, he travels to Galatia and uh, Phygeria. So that's verse 23. After some time in Antioch, he sets out and he travels to strengthen the disciples. So Paul now ends up back in uh, first Chantria, uh, and then he goes to Jerusalem and Antioch. Then from Antioch, he goes back to the churches he's already established to encourage them. Quickly, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so he's from Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they invited him to their house to explain the way of God more adequately. So now Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus, Ephesians. As they're there, there's this man, Apollos, who shows up. We see him mentioned other times in, scriptures, in, in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. So he ends up in Corinth after this, because Paul says what? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, God made it grow. 
He's mentioned in the book of Titus as well as someone that God is using. And so here we have Apollos who shows up from Alexandria, so that's Egypt. Note the four things. He's, he has a thorough knowledge of the scripture, sort of five things. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. He speaks with great fervor. He teaches about Jesus accurately, but he only knows John's baptism. So he hasn't been baptized yet, understanding what it means in, in, in terms of, of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Some people would debate that maybe he only knew how to speak of Jesus accurately until the baptism of Jesus with John. I debate that. I think it's more about the issue of baptism and the role of the Holy Spirit. So Priscilla and Aquila don't rebuke him publicly. They just take him aside privately into their home and begin to teach him so that he can explain the word of God more adequately as they're teaching him those things. So when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples uh, there to welcome him. So this is him going back now or heading to Corinth. When he arrived, he was of great help to them who by grace had believed and he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So you have a couple of things going on here, and I'm going to close. You have Paul, who likely, in this moment, it's been a rough go. He's served the Lord for a long season. He's about to enter into his third missionary journey. He's been stoned. He's been hungry. He's been beaten. He's been opposed. He's been tossed out. He's been pursued and tossed out again. He's broke. He's tent-making to make a living. Some of the cities, there's been almost no results, very little fruit. And in chapter 18, in the book of Acts, God wants to show us how he encourages him. He brings around Silas and Timothy and says, here are your comrades. Aquila and Priscilla become new comrades in the gospel. A synagogue leader is saved under his ministry, and many of the Corinthians believe. Silas and Timothy show up, and they bring money from a collection from the church in Philippi that is coming from the Macedonia area, and he's blessed with that. And then Apollo shows up teaching the word. He's a devout man who loves Jesus deeply, who teaches about him accurately, doesn't understand the role of the Spirit. Priscilla and Aquila teach him about that, and now he says, I'm ready to go. I understand all that God has in store for me. And he heads off to Corinth to continue the work that Paul had done. And you see God work powerfully. Then on top of that, the courts rule in favor of him. How does God encourage you? Jesse, you guys can come up, Andrew. How does God encourage you? Do you look for his encouragement? You know, last week when this man came up to me and told me that two of his kids had come to faith in Christ when he'd come to Christ in his 50s and his son was there. And uh, his son was there who didn't know the Lord and he was praying that God would save him even that day. Do you know how that fuels me in my preaching? Right? I'm like, hey, can I meet your son? He's like, sure. Go over and see his car. I know nothing about cars. Like, so, like... Every time I'd go up to a guy, because after the service then I walked around, and guys would be like, hey, you were in the service, that was really helpful, man, and trying to figure out God and life and stuff, and I'd have conversations. And then the next question, of course, was the most daunting one in my life. Can I show you my car? I'm like, oh, sure. And they're like, they, you know, they pop the hood. That does nothing for me, right? Like, oh, there's a battery. I recognize a battery, 
right? I know where the battery is. I can see that. Oh, good, right? And they're like, do you know what's under here? I'm like, an engine, right? Like, that's, that's what I know. That's what I got, right? They're like, do you know how many horsepower? I said, no clue. In fact, I don't see any horses. I said that several times last week because they're like, no, no, no. Like, you don't know anything about cars, do you? Like, this, this came up. So then, anyway, it just, guys were then saying to guys, we got to teach the pastor about cars. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not really here for that. I, let me talk to you about Jesus. But all of a sudden, you're fueled because you're encouraged because some dad's there who's excited about the fact that his son's there who hasn't come to faith in Christ yet, and he's like, and my other kids who couldn't be here, they're praying for him. They're praying for him. And it fuels you. I mean, what encourages you? Maybe it's sometimes you're reading the word. And just like Paul had a vision and spoke to him personally and specifically, God speaks to you. You know it's him. And right there in that moment of discouragement, you know, God's right here with me. Maybe it's a moment of provision when you're like, oh, Lord, we just need you to provide. There's this ministry. There's this opportunity. There's this thing. We don't know how to fund it. And God shows up and provides the funds. Maybe it's God allowing the government to rule in our favor in a way that you go, he's still here with us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's still the sovereign. I am in charge. Maybe it's moments when you're there and God brings friends alongside of you, brothers and sisters who encourage you, who walk alongside of you. Or you meet new brothers and sisters in faith in Christ. I mean, I don't know Rick Baker very well. He's a, he's a pastor at, at, at uh, Calvary uh, Baptist in Oshawa. And I spent breakfast with him last week and during the service with him last week. And he's a colleague in the fellowship and I've met him off and on. But man, I was encouraged by him last week. And wow, I was like excited about his ministry and what God was doing. And Monday, he sent me this amazing email of encouragement about what God had done on Sunday. And you just go, I now have a new brother in Christ, like, like a new comrade in the gospel. And it excites you because there's someone that you know that you're working with that the next time I'm in Oshawa or the next time he's in Hamilton, we can fellowship together because of the goodness of what God has done in our lives. I don't know what excites you, but I know this. We all hit these moments in life where, boom, we're just bottoming out and it's hard and it's difficult and it's troublesome. And we need to turn to the Lord. Oh, Lord, would you speak? Oh, Lord, would you provide? Oh, Lord, would you show up? Oh, Lord, we just need you. And then Apollo shows up on the scene. Needs a bit of correction. He goes off to continue to share the gospel. And Paul's like, man, another colleague in Christ. And we rejoice in that together. Oh, this week, if you've been going through a low time, would you say, God, would you speak to me? God, would you encourage me? God, would you show up? And all this week, would you do that for someone else? Because you're not the only one going through a low time. Would you just pray about whose life you might be able to speak into this week? Whose life you might be able to encourage this week? For the glory of God and the sake of his people, will you pray with me? God, we're thankful for the way that the Bible just walks us through real life. And how times serving can be so hard, God, when we find ourselves opposed by the world rather than we find ourselves just being discouraged because we see little fruit or the difficulties and tasks in front of us. God, for each of us here today, those of us that are specifically experiencing low moments, may we find our hope in you. God, may you speak to us like you did to Paul through a vision, through your word or God specifically by your spirit. May you speak to us this week in a way that you'll know, we'll know that it's you. May you encourage us with other brothers or sisters in the faith, God, who will walk alongside of us. And just put courage into us, God. And may we do that for them. 
God, may you provide in ways that we'll know it's you. And God, may you even grant from our rulers, those that are in authority, such rulings of justice that we'll be reminded in these moments that you are the sovereign and they are not. And so God, encourage us and allow us to be encouragement to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.